Any idea what we're talking about today? <laughs> but before we do that, I want to recognize our veterans. Uh, this is Veterans Day yesterday, and we just are so appreciative of the veterans. I was at a Taco Bell this week, and uh, before I realized it, because you always want to buy a meal for a veteran if you get the chance, and before I realized it, uh, the man in front of me was a veteran as he turned around, and I thanked him for his service. And he said, oh, that was a long time ago. That was 55 years ago. And I said, yes, but we're still reaping the benefits of your service 55 years later. So thank you for our veterans. Would you stand up so we can just see who you are and thank you for your service uh, for our country and for our freedom. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Then a couple of other things just quickly. Uh, this is the last day to sign up for the Bill Glass Behind the Walls campaign on December the 16th. It'll be a Friday night orientation over at North End, and then we'll go into the prisons on December the 16th. If you would like to sign up today, is the last day, behindthewalls.com if you need help with that. They have improved the website a little bit. It's still a little bit complicated, but if you want to go, uh, this was a postponement from what we we're gonna be doing in September because of the lockdown in the Texas uh, Department of Corrections. And so if you would like to go, please do that. And then will you please let me know so we'll know who is going from Westgate so we can coordinate together. And it does cost you $25. But again, as I've said previously in a couple of different emails, if you go, I will personally pay you $25, your, your registration fee. I will pay you that back out of my money, not of the churches, just to have you go along with us. And then two deaths have occurred, and rather than run a one call, because we're going to have to run a one call later on because of the memorial service, uh, Melba Grayson has passed away, and Randy Weathers' father passed away. Both of their services are going to be on December the 9th, and so we will let you know more about that as we get closer to the date. Well, as we continue our, our study of uh, 1 Timothy, eavesdropping on godly counsel, today we come to this magical topic about money. And what a great time to experience these verses. Because the National Federation, uh, Fe the National Retail Federation has forecast for us as Americans that we will spend $960 billion on holiday spending. $960 billion. Now, we hear such big numbers in America now that it's hard for us to even process how much that really is. So I wanted to try to give you a visual of that. If you had $1 million of $100 bills, that would weigh, $1 million would weigh about 22 pounds. So that means $100 bills, a million dollars of that, would weigh 22 pounds, and you could put that in a good-sized backpack. But $1 billion of $100 bills stacked tightly on top of each other weighs 22,000 pounds. Okay, just follow this train of thought, all right? You know what an 18-wheeler looks like? How many 18-wheelers would it take to house... $100 bills stacked tightly together of $960 billion. How much we're going to spend on holiday uh, stuff. 
265 18-wheelers loaded from floor to ceiling, front to back, with $100 bills stacked tightly on top of each other is $960 billion. It's a lot of money, right? 265 18-wheelers. It's been said that money is not the most important thing, but it's way ahead of whatever is in second place. Money is a very unique issue. It's something that is very private. We want to keep our money, and we don't want other people to know about our money, and we want to be able to guard our money. And so today, as Paul continues writing to Timothy, to the church at Ephesus, of how they are to live, remember 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, how Christians ought to live. That's what this book is about. He addresses the issue of money. But to set the table a little bit, remember he's been talking about false teachers. And one of the issues with false teachers was the idea that you could use godliness, religion, for monetary gain. You could open up shop, you could have products, you could help people to grow spiritually. And you could benefit from that. And so he turns this around and corrects the thought and says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 and following, godliness with contentment is great gain. See, they were using godliness, religion, for great gain, to profit from it. Paul says that's not the right equation. It's godliness with contentment leads to great gain. And then he begins to explain what all of us know to be true. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. Neither one of our children came into the world with goods and possessions. And all of us will leave the same way. In verse 8, he says, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. And some might have said, no, I want a little bit more than just food and clothing. Those who want to get rich, he's talking about these false teachers, that anybody else that falls into the camp, those who want to get rich, it doesn't mean that you don't want to be prosperous doesn't mean that you're not to do the best that you can financially. But for those who have a burning desire that I want to be rich, that's their number one priority, he says. They fall into temptation and a trap. You'll have this temptation that will take your eyes off of God. That's all a temptation is, is something to lure your attention away from God And it says they will fall into a trap. It's literally a picture. Think of a bear trap. It is a bear trap in which you cannot get out. And it is a trap that you set for yourself. You want to get rich? You're going to face temptations. You're going to face traps into doing many foolish, harmful things. Love the word that he uses there. The word foolish is thinking with a negative prefix, meaning not to think. 
So when you are trying to get rich, you will quit thinking as you should. And harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The word plunge is very interesting there because it talks about a ship going down. Not that it kind of begins to flounder, but it sinks. And he's saying if you desire to be rich, if that's your number one ambition, you will sink your life. Luke used the exact same word when he's talking about the disciples gathering all of these fish, so much so that it said their boats began to sink. Same word. It will lead to shipwreck, ruin, and destruction. It's not talking about just a few scrapes and bruises, not just a few flesh wounds from Monty, but it's talking about absolute destruction. And then verse 10, the most often quoted, misquoted verse in Scripture, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's not saying that money is evil. Read it again. The love of money is a root. It's oftentimes said the love of money is the root. It's not. It's a root, this desire, this passion. The word love there is very interesting because it's talking about having a relationship with money. It literally means to love silver. Now, we think about the bills that we have, but the kids were given those quarters, and you know, the, we think of this as being silver. It's, it's, the, it's the relationship of loving this, like you would have a relationship with a human being. That kind of love is a root of all kinds of evil. And this is where he really begins to warn us as Christians of the danger of this, because some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith. That has replaced their desire to follow God. So they have wandered away from the faith, and it says they have pierced themselves. It is a fatal wound with many griefs. Benjamin Franklin was the one who said, many a man thinks he is buying pleasure when he is really selling himself to it. Augustine, the church, early church father, would say, to discover the character of people, we have only to observe what they love. And so when we as Christians approach a topic like this, we have to ask the question, do I inappropriately love money? doesn't mean this passage is often misconstrued that there, and many have taken the, the vow of poverty and they've moved in a direction of asceticism in which you, you just try to, to not have anything. It's not a statement against money, it's a statement against the love of money, and Paul is trying to shape these Christians into having a right understanding of money. And money can be a litmus test for what we really do love, where our character is. In uh, the weeks to come, I will have another calcium score test. Bert, I didn't tell you about that, but the cardiologist is good with that. Just let's have another one. But I'm going to have a calcium score. Anybody here have a calcium score test? Okay, you go in. It's, it's a great deal. It's, it costs you less than $100 at the hospital. And they go in, and they hook these things up to your heart. And what they're doing is they're photographing your heart in such a way that they can see and identify the amount of calcium you have in your arteries and give them an understanding of, of are you in a good or bad place. 
And so a calcium score lets you know the, the amount per se, and it's not completely accurate, but it's kind of a benchmark, it helps. It gives you an idea of how much calcium is there. What Paul is doing here is he is giving us a contentment test to see what is really in our heart about money. When C.S. Lewis was talking about, quote, giving one's heart to anything but God, he said, don't let your happiness depend on something you may lose. See, sometimes our heart longs for things that we will lose. And what happens is we're lured away from God to happiness that cannot last. So Paul is warning against that as Christians. And my goal today, because you're, every time a minister preaches on money, I so wish that I could see the bubbles above your heads. <laughs> we must be behind budget. I mean, Christmas bonuses are coming up. I mean, what's, what's his angle here? So I want to give you my angle because I've thought in so many different ways of angles to go. I want us to probe our hearts. And my end objective and my hope is that across the board, we will be generous with our money. That we will be God-honoring with our money. Some of you may not yet be convinced. I, I had Dawn run some numbers, and some of you, I think, are always fearful that I know what you give. There's only two people that I know what they give, and that's Michelle and me. I don't look at records. I don't have access to that information. I don't know what you give. So be of good cheer. <laughs> but I had Dawn run some numbers. She's our financial secretary. And she knows everything. And I said, let's just keep it real simple. How many people that are affiliated with our church don't give anything? There's 120 people affiliated with Westgate that don't give anything. And so you would think, okay, he's more concerned about the money coming into the coffers of the church. There is where I want to back the truck up. For me, as a pastor, that means there's 120 plus people. Because that's just nothing. There are many that give very little. I remember years ago, we had a gentleman in our church, and he would talk about the offering. And when the offering plate was passed, he said, those are not tithers, those are tippers with a 5 and a 10 and a 20. So what I want to say in all that is I want us as a church to take a contentment test. Where is our contentment coming from? Is our contentment coming from Jesus Christ and our stuff? Or just Christ? Because that's what Paul says. Godliness with contentment is great gain. So you may have $10 million. Are you content with the $10 million? And some of us say, well, sure he is. I would be content. But it always seems like we would like just a little bit more. Never quite enough. So are we content and are we living generously? See, this concern is that we oftentimes will think of money as security as it will provide something for us beyond what it can. 
This message is just about putting money in the right place. It's not saying throw all the money away, but putting it in the right place. Have you ever thought that money will provide what we lack or want? $960 billion is saying, yes, that's how we think. That we want something else to provide greater sense of joy in our life. But it can't provide security. That's what Paul was saying, the uncertainty of it all. You remember back to the summer, back in June, June 18th, five men got on board the Titan submersible to go down to view the Titanic. Full expectation that everything would go well, it would be an incredible event. One of the men on that submersible had already gone with Jeff Bezos up into space. And so for $250,000, each of them paid to go down to see the wreckage of the Titanic. But we all know the story that fewer than two hours into the descent, the carbon fiber submarine imploded and killed all five men. And the wreckage ended up about 1,600 feet, ironically, from the Titanic. And you'll recall on the Titanic that there were people that sold their spot on a lifeboat to gain money. The understanding was they would profit from their seat on the lifeboat because the ship surely wouldn't sink. And they went down to the very same spot out in the Atlantic with money. You know the net worth of those five men who went down on the Titan? Titan? $2.8 billion. But $2.8 billion couldn't preserve their life. Money can't preserve our life. And so that's why what Paul is saying is he's trying to put it in the proper perspective. Some of you are old enough to remember in 1994 when George Swanson made headlines. The reason he made headlines is because he was buried in his white Corvette. He died, and it was an additional two months, and he'd been working on this during his lifetime, to buy 12 plots, just about 25 miles outside of Pittsburgh, to buy 12 plots so they could dig up enough to put his white Corvette and then put his ashes in the driver's seat. His widow, Caroline, said he went out in a fabulous way. And then later at a reception, she said, you have a lot of people saying they want to take it with him. Well, he took it with him. Did he? No. We're not going to take our money with us. And Paul is warning, don't hoard it and hold on to it as if you were going to take it with you beyond the grave. So treasure the right treasure. Remember what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21? Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. That's that contentment score. What you treasure most, that's where your heart is. And Paul is saying, make sure your heart and your treasure are both in the right place. And then he gives us a portfolio. You know, when we're thinking about the best return on investment, anybody want to 
guarantee that they're going to make less than 1% on your retirement? I mean, anybody want to sign up for that? Anybody want to sign up for 10%? 20? 50? No hands yet? 100%? How many of you would like to triple your, 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 your investment in the next 10 days? How many of you would like to triple it by the time we get out of this service? Okay, I'm, I'm kind of getting in your business now, right? We want a big return on investment. We don't want to take our money and just bury it and it does nothing. We want the best return. And what Paul is saying, here's the way to have the best return on investment. is to first of all, treasure the right treasure. Because ultimately, 100 years from now, we're going to remember what Jesus said. And we're going to want to have the greatest return on investment as we stand in eternity. So here's the portfolio that, that, that Paul gives us through Timothy. He says, command those who are rich. And again, these are people within the church. He's not saying, you, you go tell Warren Buffett. He's saying, command those who are rich. Because in the church at Ephesus, there were some that were extremely poor and some that had wealth. Those who are rich in the present, don't be arrogant. Does money ever generate arrogance? Sure it does. You, know, you can do extremely well financially, and you can feel like, man, I'm the smartest guy on the planet. There was a time in which I tried to invest stocks, and that's a very loose word, because it really wasn't an investment. I could have done much better by investing in a shredder and taking $100 bills and just put it in there. But here's the point. I was investing, and I bought some stock, and we were up in Colorado. And I was paying attention to things. This was over two decades ago. We were up there skiing, and I went in during a break, and I sold some stock, and I made $1,000 that day. And when I went back on the slopes, I looked around at all of the other idiots who weren't as smart as me to be able to pay off their ski trip just by trading stocks. By the time we were finished with our ski trip, I had lost all of that money and much more. Money does that to us. It makes us feel as if we're better than others. If we have a lot of money, that can be a temptation to believe that I figured it out. So he gives us this, he gives us this portfolio. He's like, don't be arrogant and don't put your hope in wealth because it's so uncertain. Just like those five men would now, if they came back from eternity, would tell us about their money that they thought was so certain when they went down to the Titanic. Put your hope in God who richly provides, and listen to what God says, everything for our enjoyment. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. So God is not saying, listen, I want you to be as miserable as possible. God wants us to experience the abundance of life. This is not health wealth, but he wants us to experience the richness of relationship with him and all the good gifts that he gives us. And if you do have an inordinate amount of money, celebrate that and be thankful for that and keep it in its proper place. And then he goes on to say, and here's the portfolio how to get the, the, the best return on investment, command them to do good. That means take your money and do 
good things, redemptive things with it. Don't just hoard it for yourself. Don't be selfish. Be rich in good deeds. Help other people. Do things that are going to minister to other people. Don't just be thinking about how it will benefit yourself. Be generous and willing to share with others. I know that what I, the assignment that I gave those kids was one that they don't like. But we're trying to teach them their willingness to share and to be generous. He says, by doing this, you do earn the greatest return on your money because you will lay up treasures for yourselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, and then you will take hold of, it means to grasp completely, life, true life. Sometimes with money, we end up with this artificial life. But this is true life. Friends, I've emptied out, Michelle and I have emptied out two houses over this year. Her parents' house, my mom's house. My mom now possesses the clothes that she wears, about three, four sets of clothes, and a few pictures. She is on the final days, weeks, months of her life. She won't be taking it with her. And that's caused Michelle and I to want to get rid of things, her more than me. And she wants to throw out everything that's not essential. So I just keep looking over my shoulder to make sure she's not looking at me as non-essential. <laughs> and so Paul is saying, this is the way to live. Summed up, live simply, give extravagantly. Live simply, give extravagantly. Here's an opportunity for you. This is not really giving extravagantly. It's just a, a step. We have the Compassion Catalogs for Christmas in here. I, I hope that many of you will join in in sponsoring children. Michelle and I sponsored three kids. Bolivia and down in San Salvador and over in Africa. But you can begin by just thinking about how can I do good deeds with the money that I have. You see this picture up here of the Dome of the Rock. It's such a, a profound picture, especially with all that's going on over in the Middle East now. And I want you to know what that picture means. Because this is an investor to emulate. If you give me just a couple minutes. I know I'm running a little bit long, but give me just a couple minutes. An investor to emulate. When you Go back to that slide for just a second, if you don't mind, Amy. When you look at the, the, the Dome of the Rock that's built on the Temple Mount, Mount Moriah, and when you go back to the Old Testament, you will find out where it's built. Second Chronicles 3.1, it tells us in other places. And this will be your reading for, uh, I think, tomorrow, the next day, something like that. We've been reading about all of this as we've been reading through the Bible. And that place right there should be such a visual reminder for all of us. Because what took place there 3,000 years ago, in which David, if you recall that he was... He called for a census, bad things happened, and the angel of death and all that, and, and this is where he stopped. That's where the angel of death stopped, right where that Dome of the Rock is. Aronal, the, the threshing floor of Aronal, Aruna is another pronunciation of his name. And David said, I want this land to build the temple of God, because that's where the angel of death stopped. And God said, and, and David said, this is where I want to build it, and Aronoff said, you can have it. You can have all the materials here to build a sacrifice. And, and David said, no, no, no. 
I will not make a sacrifice that costs me nothing. And so this temple that you see, the Dome of the Rock that is there, and that's where Solomon's temple was, what you see right there, that is the very ground in which David said, I will not give to God something that did not cost me. And he paid full price for it. And I think that's such a great reminder to us as we think about our worship to God, is that when we look at God and what he has done for us, it should be the idea that I will not give to him something that didn't cost me anything, but I will give him extravagantly. It's been said that sometimes our, our wallet is the last thing to be baptized. And we want to demonstrate our love for God in so many different ways, but not with our money. And that can be a heart issue. Close out with this story. In 1848, James Marshall discovered gold at Sutter's Creek, and that kicked off the gold rush in California. You ever see the Golden State Warriors play basketball? Why are they called the Golden State Warriors? Because that became a nickname for California because of the gold. 300,000 people over the next few years would descend upon California to try to find gold because James Marshall discovered gold at Sutter's Creek, and that inspired people to look for gold. But he never gained wealth, and part of the reason is he didn't stake his claim. Miners would drive a stake into a piece of property in which it was marked off, and though they did not own the property, they staked their claim for the rights to mine there, and he never staked his claim. And thus, he never became wealthy. My appeal for all of us as Christians, stake your claim. Stake your claim in the contentment of Jesus Christ. Don't make money what drives you. Live simply. Give extravagantly. You know, one of the things that I'm so confident of is that when we are generous, we bring a smile to the face of God. For some of you that are gathered with us today, you've never staked your claim in Christ, recognizing that he alone is the one that can save you from your sins. And that is the greatest need of anyone's life. You may look at your portfolio and say, oh, I have such great needs here. But the greatest need of every single individual is to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And if you have never prayed to receive him, asking him, pleading with him to be your Lord and Savior. I'm going to lead us in a prayer in a moment. And you can join in that prayer. And for those of us as Christians, if we've taken this contentment test today and found that we're lacking, there's a portion of that prayer that I say, I surrender to you all that I am and what? And all that I have. And that might be part of your prayer today is to surrender all you have to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the extravagance of what you have done for us, the generosity that is demonstrated through your life, death, resurrection, and ascension into glory. You have given more than we could ever imagine. Forbid it, O oh Lord, for any of us to hold back and not surrender all that we have to you. 
Help us to live simply and to give extravagantly for the cause of Christ. Lord, we recognize that today there may be those gathered with us, either online or in this room, that have never received you as Lord and Savior. They've never pleaded with you to save them from their sins. If they sense your spirit wooing them to yourself even now, I pray that they would voice a prayer similar to this. Lord Jesus, I recognize that I'm a sinner in desperate need of your forgiveness. Please forgive me of all my sins and become the Lord and Savior of my life. I surrender to you all that I am and all that I have. And I will follow hard, obeying you for the remaining days of my one and only life. God, help us all as followers of Christ to follow obediently in full surrender of all that we have to you. In your name we pray. Amen. If God has moved in your life in a way that you feel like you need to make something public, you need somebody to pray with you, our deacons are going to move right now with their wife back to the, each one of these three aisles. They'd love to pray with you and just encourage you if you want prayer. I'll be standing at the cross, pray with you as well. And you can take one of these communication cards, as Jeff alluded to earlier, and put your name and phone number on there and meet us at the Connection Center right out in the atrium and we'll be in touch with you. But let's respond now. Some of you may even want to pray down here at the altar. Let's respond in worship as we stand and sing.
Coast. Have a great week.